0: So Greg, we're here in the Eater Upsell Studio with Bianca Bosker, the author of the New York Times best-selling wine
1: memoir. Is it a wine memoir? I don't think it's a fair description. You could call a lot of Let's things. Call it but a wine memoir.
2: Yeah. Called Cork Dork. Yes, Cork Dork. And I think that what do you call it? The sub headline: A wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me to live for taste. I think it's a great.
1: Say that ten <laughs> times fast.
0: Anyone it's a book they call it a title a subtitle
1: yeah it's a
2: title <laughs> and a subtitle <laughs> Oh yes
1: that's
2: right that it's not a headline. We've learned something new today. <laughs> Silly me. <laughs>
1: well Bianca welcome to the Eater Upsell. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's really awesome to be here.
0: You know Greg and I have been doing this podcast for almost 2 years now. Maybe over 2 years. I honestly have no long no idea how long we've been doing this.
2: But have been doing it for 30 years, Helen. Yes,
0: we've grown old. <laughs> we both have very long long white beards. You are the first wine person we have had on the podcast. Wow. Well, thank you so much for having... That's cool. Yeah. It is cool. We... I was looking over our archive, um, and I suppose this is the right moment for me to plug the archive to our listeners if you haven't listened to every single episode of The Upsell. Of course, they are all at iTunes.com slash Eater or Eater.com slash Upsell. But... um, we talk to a lot of food people, and we don't talk to a lot of liquids people.
1: Hmm. Why do you think no wine people until now in your great history?
2: I think it's because a lot of wine uh, experts are just maddeningly boring, or it's a world that is so <laughs> confusing that it just doesn't necessarily translate to, uh, I mean, obviously that's not everyone, but you know, one thing I really like about your book is like I've definitely tried to get into wine- before and like read a few wine books and I always put them down because it's, there's just something about the point of entry. It's just hard to find it, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Uh, but that is definitely not the case with your book. I mean, I think it, it's a exciting story first and foremost, but also, as you're going through this story, you do learn a lot. Like if you are a novice wine person, I feel like you pick up a lot of the important things that, you know, you need to start that journey. So yeah. I commend you for, for, for achieving that.
1: Thank the, you. The thing I,
2: that all the other books have not done for
1: I me. appreciate that. That means a lot. It was something that I definitely aspire to. And I have had similar experiences that you're describing. I mean, even at the beginning, when I was embarking on this journey, and you know, for those who haven't read the book, I knew nothing about wine. Um, And picking up some of these sort of, you know, this great canon of kind of wine how-to books that would try and teach you what Sauvignon Blanc is. Um, I mean, it was like, in one ear, out the other. Like I just couldn't really orient myself. I mean, it's really hard to understand what Pinot Noir tastes like from a book, for one thing. Um, and I also felt like a lot of them didn't go back up far enough, right? Like they sort of started with, "Well, this is what oak tastes like," and but what does I mean? What does that mean? How does that feel in my mouth? All these things, and um, I feel like. I like learning things through a story. And so I do think in Cork Dork, it was a real goal that, like, it is a story. It is a narrative. And if you know nothing about wine or if you think you know everything about wine, you will learn things, but you kind of may not realize that you're learning them. Like, Helen, you have a really cute new puppy, right? I, yeah. yes. So I don't know. It's like it, – I mean – I hope readers won't be offended when I say this, but it's sort of like, you know, if you have to give your dog medicine and you like hide it in the snossage, it's not so different, right? It's like that information, it's like the news you can use, but it's disguised and, you know, it's presented in a narrative. And I think it sticks so much more.
0: One of the interesting things in Cork Dork, which, and I, I agree with Greg that This sounds like a backhanded compliment, but I mean it with complete sincerity that I am so bored by most wine books and I I don't want to be. I want to love them. And I was just, I loved reading your book. I enjoyed it so, so, so much. And I think so much of why I liked it is because you started from this place of zero, but it also kind of felt, and this is what I'm curious about when you, in your introduction to the book, before you sort of dive into the narrative, you talk a little bit about how you, you we're interested in this world from a very dis- distanced kind of journalistic perspective that you were like, this is a world of crazy people and this is all <laughs> bullshit. And like, this is just obscene amounts of money and people freaking out over liquid and like, let's dig into how empty this is. And in the course
1: of the book, you, you became a true believer. Oh, total convert. Yeah. Well, I think that it was the epiphany for me was twofold. I mean, one of it was... And I have to say again, if you haven't read it, I mean, imagine, you know, there are people who spend their Saturday nights agonizing over the choice between wines from Burgundy and Bordeaux. I would spend my ag- my Saturday nights agonizing over the choice between wines from a bottle and a box. And <laughs> I thought there was a difference, wasn't entirely sure what that would be. Um, and I got interested in this world, as you said, Helen, through this subculture of cork dorks, right? These people who spend, you know, are just obsessive about wine, like rearrange their lives and spend all this irrational amounts of time and money on something that, let's be frank, turns into very expensive pee. And on one level, I was, the journalist in me was really fascinated by this. You know, we think of wine as being this thing of pleasure. And yet these sommeliers, these collectors put themselves through a stunning amount of pain in the name of wine. But there was this more Kind of secondary, more human and personal piece to this, which was, um, you know, I at that point had spent five years at HuffPost writing about tech, and it was an amazing time to be covering tech. Finally, this was like this big, massive cultural story. But something about this world made me realize how sterile my existence was. And, you know, these sommeliers had the sort of super senses that I associate with bomb-sniffing dogs in airports, and I was just— hooked on this question of could i experience what they did you know could any of us what would change and i i do think i didn't i didn't come into it thinking that it was empty i came into it more wondering you know what was the big deal like i had never felt a glass of wine that made me feel small the way a painting or a piece of music could and so many i swore it was possible and so i came at it you know very much from the perspective of being curious, but also, to your point, a bit skeptical. You know, I really wanted to know what was bullshit and what wasn't. And you're right. I mean, at the end of it all, like, I did become a true believer. And I will also say there is a lot of bullshit. (laughs) I think I go through the things, you know, in the book that are, you know, kind of certifiably bullshit. But when you clear that away, you are really left with these precious lessons and truths that can tell us a whole lot beyond a glass of wine. So what's your relationship to wine now?
0: You spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read the book, you are now a certified sommelier. Uh-huh. You made it through. What do you do now that you're not <laughs> writing a book and working in restaurants? And
1: Yeah. Well, so um, I have been drinking – I've gone back to drinking a whole lot more wine. I mean, especially as so the book came out just a couple of weeks ago. And it's been a lot of fun because I have kind of been able to reprise certain – sommelier skills and functions. So, for example, I'm actually going to this book club tomorrow night, and they asked me, like, pick all the wines and choose them. And so I'm going to be serving them and talking about them and all that. Um, I've been doing a lot of tastings. I've also – so in the course of training to become a sommelier, I – you know, went from sort of being a respectable human who shows up at 9 a.m. for her editorial meeting in an office to being the person who sits down to her first 6 to 12 glasses of wine by 10 a.m. <laughs> on a weekday morning. Um, and that actually has become a little bit of my new routine. I'm actually very thankful to you guys that we're, we're here drinking. I'm drinking tea. I think Helen has some coffee. Because um, I mean, I've been doing a lot of interviews with a lot of glasses of wine, which is difficult. <laughs> I don't know if we have any
0: wine in the studio, but I'm sure we could pull out some. We've got some, like, bourbon somewhere
1: if you I need I don't know. It I, did a, uh, I did this like one video where they basically put out like 12 wines. So I like drink 12 wines between like 10 and you know 11.30 a.m. like rushed to do something. Like, I did a Facebook live video with another like three wines. And my mom was like you know you seemed quite loose by the end of it. <laughs> and I was like I hadn't eaten anything. <laughs> like It was. Um, but no I think it's I mean wine is such a um, You know, it went from sort of being like the accessory, like this is the thing that I will bring to a friend's house at a dinner party uh, and I will drink because it's what I am supposed to do, to being this incredible source of pleasure that is physical, that is intellectual, that is emotional. Um, I'm so curious about wines. I— have so much fun kind of helping other people travel through time and place in a glass of wine. I've become really protective of certain bottles of wine. Like my husband will be like, well, let's bring this one. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is where the only child in me comes out. And I've been like, (laughs) I've been dying to try that. I want to sit down and make sure that we're going to open it, like spend a lot of time with this one. So some people, I think some of my friends would say that I've become a little bit of an asshole. Um, I would say that I have become – a better person. And I think I, you know, try and keep some of those wine snob tendencies in check and and just, you know, use it as a force for good. A recurring note that you come
0: to throughout the book is this notion of learning a new language. Mm. And I think that, you know, once you become aware of a language, whether it's a sensory one or a verbal one, you can't turn off that part of your brain. Mm. Like you walk through the world and you smell things differently and you taste things differently. Absolutely. It's just
1: there. Oh, totally. Well, it's One thing I find really interesting is particularly the language of smell, because this idea of really learning to listen to our nose is so deeply related to language. Um, And most of us never learn to pay attention to our sense of smell. one For me, one of the big sort of realizations that I found so fascinating in the course of this journey was looking back and seeing that essentially Plato and Aristotle decided way back that taste and smell don't matter. They're the animalistic senses and we've really bought into that ever since. I mean I think it's infected science and philosophy in our daily lives and you know when we grow up we learn like the cow goes moo and the fire engine is red but we never really learn like the dog shit smells like Sort of, you know, poopy smell, like a kind of, like, fecal aroma. You know what I mean? We literally don't have words for
0: them, though. <laughs> right. I, Greg and I, I think, have talked about this on, on previous episodes, that there actually is a frustratingly small number of words to describe the way things taste, which is sort of the same as describing the way things smell. Like, our vocabulary is largely
1: metaphorical. Yeah, but I think it. we've cobbled something together that exists. We just—most of us don't use it. I mean, I think— um, You know, you're right. Compared to—there's been these fascinating studies done with these hunter-gatherer tribes that have really detailed words for smell. So they have, like, one word for the kind of um, aroma of stale, crushed shrimp's blood. They have another word for, like, fresh urine on the ground of a whatever. Um, Whereas we are kind of limited to, like, stinky, smelly, you know—I mean, not a lot, right? (laughs) But— if you look back, actually, at, like, the invention of tasting notes, which were actually, you know, they've, they've, they've gone everywhere. Wine has tasting notes, coffee, chocolates, whiskeys, of course. But these are not that old. I mean, they're really invented in the 70s. And we do have a language of aromas. It's this woman, Ann Noble, who's a professor emeritus at the University of California, Davis, sort of came up with what's referred to as the Ten Commandments. And it's this language of describing smells a bit as metaphoric to say this what wine smells like apple, smells like pear, smells like raspberry, what have you, earthy. Um, but that does exist. I mean, again, it's not a specific vocabulary. There's been actually this fascinating perfumer artist who's come up with this smell of vocabulary. I think it's, I'm maybe butchering her name, Cecil Tolas, I believe, um, has come up with very specific smell words. Of course, it's like learning a new language. It takes a lot of effort, right, to do that. So in the meantime, you know, I do think we have the language, we just don't use it. I mean, I think that a lot of people really struggle to put words on smells. For a long time, neuroscientists thought the human brain was wired to prevent it. It's actually just more of a cultural phenomenon. Most of us never build up the sense memory so that we say, you know, smell uh, parsley or something and then sort of say, okay, this is parsley. And then, you know, we have to be able—it's like learning a new word, right? It's not that your hearing has to get so much better. It's that you learn to put a— Word and meaning on a sound. And I do think we have the tools to do that with, with smell. We just, again, don't take advantage.
2: That was one of my favorite parts of like consistently reading your book is like hearing the different words that, you know, Psalms would associate smells with. Like rubber chicken <laughs> seemed to come yeah. up a lot. And I was like, how would, like, these are like these esteemed.
1: Freshly molded dildo. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, but it taint. is that, that <laughs> fresh
0: plastic smell. Yeah. Is like, I mean, n- you know, I think if anybody has had experience with, like, a certain variety of sex toy or a rubber chicken or a sommelier once described a bottle of wine to me as My Little Pony, mm. which is, like, the fresh plastic but also with a little bit of powdery vanilla. I mean, yeah. it's a real smell. It's, totally. like, a very visceral sense memory, like, yeah. like vaguely floppy plastic <laughs> injection molded thing.
1: <laughs> like,
0: maybe, like, I don't want my psalm to describe the $120 bottle of wine as yeah. a dildo, but, like, it also might actually be accurate right these totally. are the pitfalls of metaphorical tasting yeah notes.
1: absolutely and likewise i think other people take in the other direction in the other direction where they're like oh it's like panclier it's like you know this incredible it's like macaroon on a freshly tuesday something you know like these crazy terms that are you know it's poetry it's it's so-
2: are there any tasting notes where you roll your eyes like you're like that's that that's not, that's not a thing.
1: So it depends on the situation, but yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, there's on the one hand, I think where, so just to dive into tasting notes, cause this was a big thing for me because I would sit down and, you know, people were rattling off these smells that just seemed almost impossible. You know, I remember it's like fresh lilies, Easter lilies, all the lilies. And it's like all the lilies. Are you sure? All the, like, have you smelled all of the lilies? You know that they're in this glass. I mean, um, and as, a, as a Journalist and as you know, someone that was, you know, I just I felt like I wanted to fact-check this. I wanted to know, like, is it actually there? Um so again, as I mentioned, trace back this history of tasting notes. And what I think is is interesting is we're seeing, first of all, it started as a very straightforward language. I mean, you know, comparing wine to the sorts of things you find in a supermarket. It didn't get all that much more exotic in this original, you know, tasting uh, wheel that Ann Noble did of Fruit Loops, right? And now, as to your point, we've gone to like baby's breath and all these things. So you've seen this trend where I think tasting notes have been – a bit um, corrupted, where marketing has substituted for meaning, and so in those cases that you're describing, that's where I do roll my eyes a bit. Where um, it just starts to feel like you're describing the experience that you want a guest to have, rather than the
2: actual wine.
1: Now, on the other the thing hand, that'll
2: help them get there. Yeah, like-
1: yeah, and. A sunny afternoon,
0: the top down, a yeah. '64 <laughs> Cabriolet. Like, yeah. it's like no, it doesn't actually taste like
1: that. But you also find there's been this concurrent trend among sommeliers to go to this scientific language of wine. So instead of saying that a wine smells like green bell pepper or black pepper, you'd say it smells like pyrazines or rotundone, which are actually calling out the specific aromatic molecules that exist in the wine and give it that aroma. By the way, those are not crazy because if you look at Sauvignon Blanc, we often say it smells like green bell pepper. Well, green bell pepper and Sauvignon Blanc grapes both contain pyrazines. so. Not nuts. Um, but I do roll my eyes when I see there are Psalms that um, will use that sort of highly scientific language in front of guests, which just seems a little like you're showing off and very, I mean, wine is already something that can be hard for people to wrap their head around. Like, why are you taking it? Or, you know? Um, but, I, and I do, at the same time that I sometimes roll my eyes around the poetry of it, I think there can be a place for it. You know, I've been doing this. Um, series on Instagram so it's like I have all this wine knowledge and I want to again kind of use it and kind of try and help people and so basically it's a series called Pear Double and the idea is pairing wines with the food that we actually eat like slovenly as it may be you know papaya king hot dogs like ramen cup of noodles you know because I think so many people think of wine as like, okay, it's this thing only for a really special occasion in a steak dinner. No, like it can make an occasion special. So when I write these the sort of tasting notes for these wines, I do often use things that are more metaphorical. Because my goal is not to give you the exact description. It is more to just pique your curiosity. So I am definitely guilty of describing, I think, Gamay as like... Pinot Noir's hipster uncle that goes to Burning Man. Oh my um, God. And like <laughs> um, Is that supposed I, to make us like it or not like it? <laughs> well, he's been going for a really long time. So he's not like the tech helicopter in Burning. Oh no, he's like <laughs> legit. He's an original burner. He's an OG yeah. burner. All right. Um but you know, it's because I, I will say with Morgan, so after I quit my job as a tech editor, after I started over as a seller rat, you know, low Lolo, um so this guy Morgan was one of my Sam mentors, and he would describe wines in these really kind of crazy evocative ways that just made me so interested to put whatever he was describing in my mouth. Um and I think that, you know, I think there's a time and place for everything. I think it's when also when people purport to specificity and they're not actually being specific. You know, the word shirvil came up over and over and over in this blind tasting notes in, in that I in these um blind tasting groups that I was in with these aspiring master sommeliers. And first of all, I didn't know what Sherville was. I thought maybe it was like the second cousin of a gerbil who went to Burning Man. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> and um, I— So much Burning Man. Um, <laughs> and I remember, you know, finally like bringing in a—it was my turn to captain the group. I brought in like basically these smell standards, so like a little few mushrooms, a few little things of Sherville— and essentially bl- had them blind smell. So it's like, if you can smell chervil in a wine, you should be able to smell chervil and chervil. This was one of my favorite moments Did in the Did not go well. Yeah.
0: <laughs> this is, it was incredible. None of them could identify actual chervil, yeah. which is a, a sort of leafy greener yeah, kind of— Yeah, I think of, it was sort of like tarragon-ish. It's like tarragon and parsley had a baby
1: or yeah, something. That burning, yeah, that went to Burning <laughs> Man. That went to
0: Burning Man with Pinot Noir's uncle. Um yeah no and that which was an amazing moment in the book really like it was like the opposite of a crescendo i guess like you know it was this like suddenly like i felt like the bottom fell out a little bit but also um for me as a reader it crystallized a creeping suspicion that i had had while i was reading which is that this pretends to be a book about the wine world and in many respects it it actually is but um really the the process that you undergo through the course of, of this whole book and, and that all of the folks that you're spending time with, it's really about honing perception, not necessarily mm. honing description. And at the very end of the book, you go into an fMRI and you learn that your brain actually has changed. And- I think it's fascinating that that can exist at the same time that nobody can actually know what Chervil smells like. Like, you are actually getting better. You're just maybe not using the right words to describe it.
1: Not you, but like one. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up and that that came through because I think it is a book about wine, as I sort of write. It's not, you know, it's not a journey from grape to glass. It's a journey from glass to gullet, right? It's about the people who drink wine. Why? Um, you know what do we really taste when we taste wine? The whole culture of it, the crazy wine orgies for millionaires. Uh, you know, something to come back to that too. I, <laughs> Greg, I actually, so Greg, as we were talking about earlier, listened to the audiobook version of this.
0: I now want to find the audiobook just to listen to you read the <laughs> chapter about Leopold. I think I'm saying oh my parts of it. God, um, we're gonna put a pin in that and come back to that section.
1: So yeah, but I think the um, what I really found in my experience was that. Wine taught me a discipline and a mindset that I've carried over into all other aspects of my life. And so in that sense, yeah, it's a book about wine. It's a journey, again, through the cellars, these tasting groups, all these things. But I think it really is about a larger message about honing our senses, about tuning into these senses I we ignore. And I don't know if you—I'm if this, I'm actually very curious to know if this resonated with you because you write so much about food. But I found— the more I got into this world, and I trained with sommeliers, and you know, worked with neuroscientists and sensory science to hone my sense of taste, the more I became cognizant of what I see as this paradox in our foodie fanaticism, which is we spend we spend all this time and money and effort finding things that will taste good, and we never really teach ourselves to taste better. And I think that the result is a lot of us settle what I would for what I would describe as secondhand sensing. Right, something is delicious because you know, Helen, you gave it like an... You wrote some awesome profile of the chef or it's expensive or it has super cool Edison bulbs or like mid-century modern furniture in the restaurant. And with wine, you know, this is a world of people who reject the sort of anti-sense sensibility, this old idea that taste and smell don't matter and live for these forgotten senses. And I think what they show us is the way I think what they show us what wine shows us is that this can this can offer us a system for really staying true to our own felt experience of something and more than that you know I learned from them what I describe as sensefulness which is this idea that it's really by tuning into our senses that we learn to make sense of the world and that was something that again I learned a glass of wine but I hope for readers of the book that that's something that at least I have done, I hope they do it too, is applicable way, way beyond that. I mean, riding the subway has become a real different experience. The smells are just, I've learned a lot more about
2: the smell of the city. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And I like that. I like that.
2: Yeah, I definitely, it definitely made me, as I was reading, think about sort of senses and in food and in wine and all that stuff and try to think. Geez, I guess I was just thinking about how to keep that turned on, you know? Like if yeah. you once you become aware of it, it's like, um I mean, I don't know, in your experience were you like, I have to keep flexing this muscle or else I'm not gonna stay tone, you know?
1: Yeah, but I enjoy it. I mean, I think that there's um there's so much information that part of what got me on this, just to get a little more personal for a moment, I mean part of Part of this initial epiphany for me is I was like, oh, my God, we have five—we've been given five senses to make sense of the world, and we basically ignore two of them. And life is short, and I just felt like, look, there's so much else that I feel like I'm missing. There's this information I'm neglecting. I want to know what that is. Like, why is it that when I stick my nose into a glass of wine, all I smell is wine? And these other people—maybe it's a little poetry, but I think a lot of it is really learned and true that they can smell— Stories, histories, raspberry, I mean, all these things. So for me, I mean, it's um, it's something that I do continue to practice. I mean, when I go for like a walk in the park, I'm constantly like dragging my husband in different directions so I can like smell a branch or smell a daffodil because it's like people talk about wine smelling like a daffodil. Well, what is that really? What is it? Here's a daffodil. Now I can find out. I mean, I've done smell walks around the city where you're essentially just— trying to categorize every smell that crosses your path and it's really made me understand neighborhoods in a different way. So I do think that it's it's actually to me it's a great pleasure to to keep honing that muscle. Also it's weird that it's rude to smell things. Like I will also <laughs> do it like if I'm eating sushi, like I'll smell every piece of fish before I eat it because first of all, it's expensive and you want to prolong that pleasure, but also I'm curious, like what what is the difference? Like how does how does salmon smell different from a piece of tuna? And the problem is though it can look rude. It can look like you're don't think it's fresh or something like that. And anyway, I think I think smell needs a, it shouldn't it shouldn't be like a, a rude thing to do.
0: Well I think in food as opposed to wine, taste is often uh, as we've discussed quite a lot here, like taste is often not even in the top five most important things to consider when you're at some types of restaurants. Mm, I mean, taste is part of the equation, but it is rarely the full, you know, if we talk about some cool new restaurant and like, do we all totally love it? Some of it, you know, like you said, might be because we are positively disposed toward the chef or the room feels cool or we like who we are when we walk into the space. And the food can be transcendent and extraordinary but in a lot of cases as long as the other elements are there all a lot of diners ask of the food is that it hit a certain sort of minimum threshold Mm. of like
1: you know not bad right and I think you know it's not crazy I mean flavor is not just taste and smell right it is the room it's who we're with all these things but but we don't have people I think who would like you know bite into a,
0: a plate of spaghetti carbonara and tease out like well here's what the hens who laid the egg that this was made with were fed or, like, here is, you know, oh, this definitely isn't guanciale, this is actually bacon, or, mm. or you know, really kind of get in to the nitty-gritty of the pasta. There are certainly, I think, are people out there who have the palates for yeah. food, but there isn't an apparatus built around cultivating it the same way there is with wine. There isn't this fixation and connoisseurship that has been formalized and culturally codified.
1: Right, and we know, I mean, there was um, that fascinating investigative piece, I think out of Florida, where this woman went and essentially took all these farm-to-table restaurants that would write the menus that we've all read, where it's like, well, this pasta came from this farm, this egg came from this particular producer, these are crabs caught off the bay of Florida, and basically went through and Inventoried where exactly all these restaurants were actually getting their produce, like where the crabs were really coming from, where the pasta, all these eggs, and found in a horrifying number of cases that not only were, I mean, that it was just made up. I mean, it was really just make-believe. That in some cases they weren't, you know, had never worked with the supplier of this farm, or this farm didn't even grow the type of chicken that was was supposedly being survived. Yeah. And then there's that other, that book, what was it? Um, about fake food that came out that also showed that, you yes. know, that like – what is it? Is it wagyu beef Yeah, wagyu something? beef is almost never actually wagyu. Yeah, but and the white fish that they serve in sushi restaurants is like almost always, you know, I don't – you know, like shrimp or something. I mean it's just that essentially that we're really um, – so much of the food and even types of meat or types of olive oil that we think that we're eating um, is often just completely other species or from other parts of the world. Yeah,
0: and I think, you know, the – that, that Tampa Bay Times piece that you were talking mm. about by Laura Riley, it was a finalist for the Pulitzers this year for investigative yeah, journalism. was great. And all she really did, I mean, n- this is in no way to drag the yeah. piece, which I think was a, a phenomenal work of reporting, but, you know, when that came out last year, I remember sitting down and reading it and thinking, God, all she frickin' did was fact <laughs> check the menus. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that we have just been taking for granted. Oh, totally. And it is, like you said, like it's marketing, you know, like, and and I think, you know, we've all read this over and over again, that if a restaurant says Neiman Ranch bacon on the description of the burger, we're going to think it's fancier, even if intellectually we understand that Neiman Ranch is just as massive and impersonal right. a pork processing right. facility <laughs> as like any other. It just happens to like have a fancy name attached to it. And so this whole idea of Manipulation, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it is present in the wine world. You talk about oh, in yeah. the book uh, on the label and, and the fantasy names that the wines are given, but also, you know, you talk about um, Morgan Harris, your mentor, spirit guide, et cetera. Yeah, spirit guide. I like um, that. <laughs> how, when he sells a table on a bottle of wine, he creates an entire atmosphere. And by introducing ritual and formality and specialness to his interaction with, tables that he's serving, he can get them in a very organic way to switch from deciding to order by the glass, to order by the bottle, or from a $60 bottle to a $200 bottle. So it is, there's more than just, you know, the chemical compounds.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think in an even more literal way, wine has benefited, you know, from sort of a green washing or red washing, I don't know what you call it, but it's, um, you know, we think, so one of the things I also did for the book was to go... Part of it was in this quest for quality to get go behind the scenes to see how the wines that most of us drink most of the time are really made. And as it turns out, they're not so much made as they are engineered. You know, I think that so many people see wine, no matter how much it costs, as this artisanal product that is this pure artistic combination of grapes and yeast and love— And the reality is very different. I mean, when you look at um, these mass market bottles, there's First of all, they've been really made from the consumer backwards. They use focus groups to bring people in and almost like flavor scientists making a new Doritos, Locos, Tacos, Oreo, something. Um, they're really designing these wines based on what people respond to. Um, and then more than that, there's just dozens of additives that can go into wines to really massage the flavor. And that exists in the lower end bottles. But it's also, I mean, I've spoken with the distributors who who sell these powders and pumps and all these things, they're in high-end, you know, $150, $200 bottles as well. The thing is, winemakers don't have to disclose it. They don't have to tell you the ingredients they've put into their bottles. So it's very hard to know if there's been some, you know, liquid oak tannins or tartaric acid or whatever. And, you know, these aren't some people would disagree with me, but in in some cases, they sound scarier than they really are. I mean, tartaric acid sounds creepy until you think that it's well also naturally crying in grapes. Um, but I do think that wine ha- the wine industry has really painted a very fairy tale portrait of itself, and it's so heavy on the romance and so heavy on the tradition. and I think that, first of all, the reality is so much more interesting and so much more complex and way messier. But also I think that it really disempowers people. Is that a word? Is disempower a word? Oh, yeah. Okay. I think it
2: plays, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, because I think that you kind of, um, you as a as a drinker, don't get the benefit of knowing really the ins and outs of what happens to these bottles. Instead, you're just given this beautiful, Label with a vineyard and a castle and, you know, it may have come from a parking lot with a you know massive stainless steel tanks, but no one will tell you that.
0: <laughs> you wrote an article for The Times recently that touched on some of this that I thought was super fascinating where you kind of um, went into the process that some of these, I guess, mass market yeah. wineries go through to make exactly the wine that their customer wants to drink. And totally. it is so – it is like – like engineering Doritos to you know force you to want another one every single time and I thought it was um illuminating like I I I in a weird way felt relieved that there was you know sort of science and capitalism and manipulation behind (laughs) something that really does like to kind of wrap itself in fairy
1: tale like yeah it's like oh no 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 you're you're human too yeah right totally well Yeah, and I think that um, that was a really interesting piece. It was an an adapted excerpt from the book, um, and it set off a ton of conversation in the wine world, and some of it was really positive, and there was a lot of really, I think, great and constructive conversation, and at the flip side, I hadn't expected this, I have to say, but I probably should have in retrospect, I mean, um, but— It set off, um, you know, there was a good deal of criticism as well. I mean, people that I think in some extent kind of misunderstood the argument because part of the story was saying, look, these are wines that connoisseurs dismiss as bad outright. And they're not to my personal taste. I don't love them. But just because I don't love them, first of all, doesn't mean that they don't have a place. And essentially the story was arguing that these wines that have been you know, that they can have a place, that they can serve a purpose, that for some people this may be their gateway to becoming a thoughtful wine drinker. Um, Not everyone's going to start with, like, a 1960 Barolo. First of all, not everyone will like that wine. Secondly, certainly not everyone can afford that wine. Um, And the reaction, I mean, whew. Um, (laughs) There were, you know, people that told me that, uh, you know, they had a seizure when they read the story that like I what? was the reason that Trump got elected. I had someone that stalked me at a wine bar and like posted a photo on my Facebook page and was like, "You're an opportunistic piece of shit. You better run if you ever see me in the street." And wow. I think what I find that really would, like, be my Twitter bio. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, you, you can borrow it if you want. Um, well, but I think people. This is not that you should have expected this, and certainly not that you deserve it. But like. Whenever a window is opened onto a world, in general, the people who live in that world are often unhappy to be scrutinized.
1: And I think that— No, no, no. This was from people who are champions of natural wines by the most most part. Right. And I think that's the other thing is that like when uh, you have— I should say, by the way— Lest I get more stocking. I am a huge fan of natural wine. I drink a lot of natural wine. I like fine wines. I think that there's a place for all of this. And that was the point of the story was to sort of say, let's leave open like a variety and diverse set of choices. Well, we have That's this my in, caveat. Right, go ahead. No, I
0: mean, look, this exists virtually everywhere. I think it, it exists in the restaurant world that Greg and I inhabit. It exists in the music world that I keep referencing, even though I know nothing about it. Like there are people who exist within a space of purity and knowledge and, you know, sort of rarefied sensibilities who've put in a lot of time and work and have a huge amount of their identity wrapped up in their positions and their experiences and their intelligence. And the notion that, you know, a relatively shallow, fairly populist rendition of whatever whatever it is that they're deeply passionate about has any validity can be really challenging to their self-concept. And maybe they don't always express that in healthy ways. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think there were some people that express it in, in healthy ways. And I think, you know, there's um, – what I just – well, I say what I – first of all, I think that conversation is good. I think that disagreement is good. I think so often in the wine world, again, we – there's a lot of patting on the back and people saying, well, isn't it nice that we all agree that this is, you know, beautiful and traditional and, and you know, the kind of happy um, – you know, portrait uh, that they paint of the. I should say. It's, um, yeah, I think oftentimes there's a lot of agreement. And, you know, it's a healthy to reconsider our perspectives, what we believe. And if we come out believing the same thing, fine. But, you know, it's healthy to, to sort of reconsider it. What I will say is the main thing that I found troubling with the reaction is that it seems to hinge on this idea of telling people what to taste rather than showing them how to taste. And I think the wine world has operated in the former realm for a very, very long period of time where it's sort of like this is our definition of good. This is our definition of um, sort of, a you know, what you should be drinking um, rather than really telling people this is how you wrap your world. Of, I mean, this is how you get up close and personal with your tongue so that you can develop what I think is a Much more solid foundation for relationship with wine.
2: Reading your book, uh, I feel like was a portal into a world that I just completely never knew existed this world of blind tastings and all these kind of almost academic groups and all these circles and the kind of endless like tastings. And so, for that reason, I, I, you know, I'm so glad I read your book, but I'm just curious, like, what surprised you most about this inner world of the sommelier as like a sort of societal, you know, as a little society?
1: I mean, look, as I said—part of it was, as I said before, the fact that, you know, wine—we think—somehow it it seems like a life in wine is something super sybaritic and— You know, a hard day's work is drinking, like, Bordeaux that's, like, less than 12 years old. Um, And, in fact, like, these were the most masochistic group of hedonists I'd ever met in my life. But I will say the other part—so, you know, I not only went to these sort of, like, secret societies hiding in plain sight of these tasting groups, but also spent time on the floor of these restaurants. And one of the biggest epiphanies for me was when I was doing a trail at this two-star Michelin restaurant, Marea, for those who don't know it. So I'm like— Near a little stretch of Manhattan known as Billionaires Row, which tell you kind of what you need to know about the place, um, and they really judge their guests every bit as much as the guests are judging them. And I found that it both it kind of intuitively makes sense when you stop to think about it, um, but they keep tabs on their customers, they log their preferences, their pet peeves, their relationship to the restaurant, their budget. You know, if you spend a lot of money on wine, you might be labeled a wine PX, which is short for Personne Extraordinaire. If you spend a whole hell of a lot of money on wine, you could be a PPX, which is Personne Particulièrement Extraordinaire. If you throw a temper tantrum, you might be uh, dubbed HWC, which means Handle With Care. Um, also known elsewhere as SOE, short for sense of entitlement.
2: This is horrifying. Um, and <laughs> I SOE. <think> that, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm gonna use that.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, none of them here in New York, just absent of those SOEs. Um oh, yeah, we have none. But none. Uh, you know, these are essentially printed. Oh, and also, you know, of course they also aspire to Google every guest before they came in. And you get these tickets that print as a table is seated. So the servers, the sommeliers, the managers, everyone knows how to treat that table. Um And yeah, there's—I remember seeing one that was ATG, short for According to Google, Investment Banking Analyst at Barclays Capital. Um, And, you know, I think that it's—part of it is, of course, that this is a business, right, that they want to— You know, wine is a progressive tax rate of the restaurant world, right? Everyone's going to pay the same amount for a plate of pasta, but some people will be able to afford to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on a bottle of wine. And that, you know, liquid keeps the restaurant liquid. On the other hand, you know, look, if you're a regular, if you spend a lot of money on wine, of course you want a special treatment, right? That's not crazy. And I think the other piece of it is, like we were talking about before, sommeliers, you know, in servers, especially at these high-end restaurants, they're not just delivering you calories on a plate, right? They are delivering an experience. They want to be able to deliver what you want emotionally from that meal, and I think that part of that record keeping helps to do that. So, don't be too scared, but also don't be a jerk. <laughs> you know, it's so fascinating. Don't be an HWC. This
2: <laughs> yeah, this is the stuff. Every, I mean, it's a really it's good, good traveling Wilburys side. song. Yeah. Yeah, I don't
1: know. <laughs> Well, I will say it's incredible, though. So I remember when I was working um, at Terroir, uh, so you get really, really good at reading people. And I remember when I was working at Terroir, the chef who worked in this open kitchen right near the wine bar came up to me one night. He says, you see those two people over there? And it was a girl and a guy, you know, like late 20s. He's like, she's going to be crying in 10 minutes. And I was like, what are you talking about? How do you know? That's crazy. You know, I go, like, you know, help a few people with their wine, come back over. It's, like, eight and a half minutes later, and the girl's bawling, like, sobbing. And the chef is like, I told you so. And he's, he was like, he's gay. She doesn't know it. Uh, like, end of story. Wow. <laughs> and it was just—and who knows if the latter part was true, but I think that, you know, it just speaks to— you know, you are constantly reading your fellow man, especially with wine, because people are so—for large part, for the most part, people have a really hard time talking about what they want from wine. So you have to be very good at reading the full picture. For some, it's analyzing, you know, the rings on the women's fingers, whether it's the me- watches on the men's wrists. But um, it could just be the, uh, you know, how, how f- cross do you look when you come in?
0: Well, this was, I think, you know, for all that your book is secretly a book about the neuroscience of smell and taste, it also— has this whole second half of the wine world, which maybe only by accident and circumstance is connected to the tasting component, which is service. Mm -hmm. So you have all these folks with meticulously honed palates and nasal cavities, (laughs) and who spend their lives memorizing uncountable tens of thousands of facts and figures and concatenations of flavors and elements and esters, but they also are working with choreographers to perfect their posture and vocal coaches to have resonant voices and are, I remember like, the, what was it, you can never show the back of your hand. Right, to, you I to guess to pour I mean, open-handed. Yeah. So the the list of requirements for service for being a, a servant, I mean, you know, like you're serving your, you know, royalty in your restaurant <laughs> or your, wherever you are, like, is... It happens to share a bucket with knowing everything about wine, but in in some ways they're intensely different skill sets and fascinations.
1: Well, one yeah feeds off the other, but I think that there's um I, I have kind of come to think of some ways as being like the Olympic gymnasts of the restaurant world where it looks really easy, but it's because you're juggling these most difficult things, and your job is to make it look effortlessly graceful. Um, And it takes a bit of knowing to really understand all of the ways that they're choosing their words in order to flatter certain guests or risk not offending them. The way that You know, you really should be pouring only open-handed. You're walking clockwise around the table. You know, all of these rules and regulations that, you know, the proper way of opening a bottle of champagne and how you position your hands and where you hold it relative to the body. I mean, once—I will say it kind of has spoiled me as a diner because I became aware of this whole set of rules and etiquette that now I'm very cognizant of when it's being broken. Um, But in an interesting way, I think that the—first of all, the blind tasting helps you do the service part better. And at the end of the day, being a sommelier is not just about getting more out of wine yourself. I mean, those are the that is the the purview and the privilege of the guys who go to La Pollée and the, you know, crazy burgundy bacchanals and spend millions of dollars on wine. You know, your job is to help other people have an experience in a glass of wine. And I do think that the best of them are, they're not just cork pullers, they're storytellers, and they accomplish that. In part, by the way, they just they move their body, they how they hold their shoulders, again the tone of voice. It's a lot. Yeah, There's a lot going um, on there.
2: Um, re- quickly, you know, before uh, the mic started rolling, I was saying how much I enjoyed listening to your your book on. Uh, you don't call it a book on tape. Audio book. Well, I, yeah. I still
0: kind of call it a book yeah. on tape in my heart. Like, the, and, it, well, that uh, comes from like cassette
2: uh, tape days,
0: right? I, mean, I remember but, when, like, and it would be like like fourteen cassettes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you do a great job of uh, slightly changing your voice when you're imitating someone uh, in a way that is not cartoonish, but uh, very effective and kind of breaks it up, um, which I really appreciate it. I'm just kind of curious. OK, beginning to end, how long does it take to record that audiobook?
1: I think it's supposed to take three and a half days or so. It took me like five days ish, um, partially because I was being, like, uh, unacceptably perfectionist about different places. Part of it is I didn't realize how many words— I feel like this is a curse of an only child, where you, like, read a whole lot and spend a lot of time alone not talking to people. Um, But there were a lot of words I used in my book that I didn't realize I didn't know how to pronounce. And so we would spend a lot of time pausing, like, looking it up in the dictionary. I'd be, like, listening, like, okay, this is how you pronounce. Even the word iron. I say, like, I'm going to iron my shirt, and it's apparently, like, iron— it's iron.
0: Like, iron? <laughs> like, like, yeah. like smoothing yeah. wrinkles out of something yeah, with exactly. a hot
1: yeah. device.
0: Yeah. I say I- iron.
1: Yeah, you like swallow iron. the E. It's like, an, yeah. it's like E-I-E-R. Anyway. Uh,
0: wow, I never realized that I do not say that the way it's spelled.
1: No, well, yeah. Do you, you say iron? I say iron, yeah, because I think my mom always said iron, so I said
2: iron. Well, you sound like a real pro, i got to say. It's kind of like <laughs> just a really long podcast, you know?
1: <laughs> It was great. It's very hard on your voice, but it was a blast. Cool. I, and I love doing it. I mean, look, it's—again, I, I read the book the way that I read it to myself as I was writing it. And that just felt like such a gift because I feel like as a listener, you get to really come into my head as a writer. I mean, I almost wonder how other—I wonder if your experience of the book, having listened to it, is different from your experience, Helen, of having read it. You know, maybe you think how we
0: ever know. know. Yeah,
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Until we meld our minds. We will do a Vulcan mind (laughs) meld.
0: Greg and I will become one. And then
2: there'll be just one host of the Eater Upsell. Greg (laughs) Ellen. Held. A leg. Okay, this is silly.
0: Okay, I think we've reached the point where we need to turn this over to the adults. Um, the lightning round today. Do you, I was going
1: to say, do we want to talk, we a taco, we'd put a pin in that? Oh, the, we did yeah. put a
0: pin in Le Palais. Um, I don't know if there's a way you want to go back if we end up still up here. So you, what is Le
2: Palais yeah. in one sentence? How would us, you describe it?
1: Give us the one sentence, holy shit, on this. Wine Palais is a wine, wine orgy for the mega rich. That is my best description of it. and It's not a sex orgy, though. It's a wine orgy. It's a wine orgy, yeah. This is
0: literally just obscenely rich people treating incredibly expensive bottles of wine in a fascinatingly
1: cavalier way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent all this time with sommeliers. I feel like I understood this sort of how they do what they do, why they do it. And what I didn't totally understand was the psychology of the people that they were serving, right? Why does someone spend all this time and money on wine? And so I— basically weaseled my way into what is widely considered the most extravagant gathering of wine collectors on the planet. It's a thing called La La Polée. And it's based on an old Burgundy tradition, but now they have it in New York, alternating San Francisco. And it's essentially a week of events, you know, $7,000 head dinners, um, culminating with this gala dinner that I went to. And it's $1,500 a person, B-Y-O-B. So you should bring treasures from your cellar. And I Really think of it as a wine orgy because everyone is there to bring pleasure to other people by doing something to their body, and it is so kind of carnal in its way. I mean, I remember, you know, I had a guy who I've never met before. You know, we're both walking around with our bottles of wine, offering tastes to other people, and we lock eyes, and he comes over to me and I offer him a taste of my wine. He says, "No, no, I'm good." And he said, "I'm going to give you a taste of mine, but..." Before I do, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever had an orgasm standing up? And I was like, I don't know you well enough, um, but we'll see. I I mean, it was just so bizarre. And like that gives you a sense for the tenor. I mean, you know, men feeding other men shaved black truffle and, you know, people placing cheese on each other's mouths, bringing people over to sniff their wines. I mean, it's... um, just uh, totally over the top, and I mean millions of dollars of wine, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the dump buckets alone. I mean the amount of wine that you dump out is just criminal. You know, great wine, but there's so much of it. <laughs> it's a wonderful,
2: horrifying amount of excess. That sounds wild. I don't think I ever want to go to that, but <laughs> you know.
0: Glad it exists, I guess. Am I? I'm not sure if I'm glad. I need to. I need to figure out how I feel yeah. about it. Well, anyway, um, while we have that mental picture flopping around inside of our heads, we have arrived at the lightning round. Um, As our regular listeners know, in the lightning round, we turn the floor over to a guest question asker. Today, it is frequent upsell guest, favorite person of all of us, Amanda Clute, our boss, the editor-in-chief of Eater. Hi, Bianca. This is Amanda Clute, the editor-in-chief of Eater, and I have some lightning round questions for you. What is your biggest wine service pet
1: peeve? When the bottles aren't served at the right temperature. I have become an annoying person when it comes to that. If the wine is too warm or even more often too warm than too cold, but um, I've become that really annoying person that's like, can you bring over some ice so I can put the bottle in ice? Like, it just, it does make a big difference. Like, the way even that the aromas come out of the glass, the way the alcohol hits your tongue, um... I feel like I've become like a little obnoxious about that and and it bothers me.
2: Well, it's like food tastes different when it's at the right temperature. Yeah, yeah.
1: Thank you, thank you. (laughs) I think it's totally, do you ever put ice in your wine? Uh, I don't, but I could see making like a wine spritzer and putting ice in that. Okay, yeah. I'll take that as validation. if If that's how you, you know, roll with your wine. I mean, look, I probably recommend against taking like some incredible bottle of wine and putting ice in it, but you know, I could see how like, rosé when you're in the pool could get better with a few cubes of ice like it's okay i
2: i drink cheap trader joe's rosé with ice several times a week
1: it's probably better with ice in it it (laughs) It is is freaking delicious
0: it (laughs) all right amanda what's your next question for bianca
1: i Hmm? again. no no No, no, keep going no 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 please share i will say the the other pet peeve i have is when people when sommeliers or servers um hold the wine glass um so they're fingers are on the bowl right so that not holding the stem that they're like getting their fingerprints all over the bowl of the wine you're not really supposed to hold it there i mean it doesn't really make sense i mean it's like the most logical place to put your hand it's the big part of the of the glass um but you know you you end up with like someone else's fingerprints all over your glass which is just not the most appetizing thing word i I will now (laughs) be looking for that forever thank you Okay,
0: Amanda, what's your next question for Bianca? Do you drink on planes? If so, what's your drink?
1: (laughs) Lay it on us. Um, It really depends. I'm such a nerd that I'm often uh, working a lot on planes, and so I'm not drinking. But I will say, if I for some reason could get my hands on it, um, I oftentimes—so I recently was flying to London, and my husband and I got upgraded, which was amazing, and— I downed more than my fair share of Armagnac, which was just so cool to find on the plane. That was awesome. Um, In general, you know, look, when you're drinking on a plane, you are—it's part of why everything tastes so bad on a plane is that it's really, really noisy. So loud noises dull our impressions of taste. And, um, I mean, I would say in that sense, like, you lose— sorry, can we rewind? Yeah. (laughs) Loud noises dull your—
0: That's— fascinating yeah is this the same reason that like you turn off the radio when you're looking for an address and you're driving in the car
1: (laughs) i don't know i haven't read the studies on that one but basically you know if you it's partially um you know i i kind of wonder if one of the reasons that food has become so salty is that in restaurants is because like so many restaurants are so freaking noisy, and like you need like a lot of umph to like really cut through that. Yeah, you um, just described
2: like half the restaurants in Lower Manhattan. You've you know? also just yeah. completely blown my mind,
0: <laughs> and I think Greg's too. If your face is any indication, like <laughs> everything facing. just suddenly
1: made sense. If I'm, I mean, the other thing, what would I go for? Oftentimes, I want to pass out, so I'll drink a red wine. But in general, like you know, something crisp and refreshing, I and mean, maybe you go like kind of high acid white, like, uh, you know, you could do a Sauvignon Blanc. You could do, you know, not too oaked t- Chardonnay. Um, but if they've got the good stuff, just milk that. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, Amanda, what's next? Hit me, Amanda. I'm ready. Why is so much wine
0: writing so bad? <laughs> <laughs> Zero punches
1: pulled. Um, I think that— um it's a really hard question to answer because I don't want to like you know. Do you, well, so do you agree with the premise?
2: <laughs>
1: She's <laughs> nodding. Um, <laughs> I think I think that there's I think that there's some really really great r- wine writing out there. I think that there's also a lot of wine writing um, by people who forgot what it was like to be confounded by a glass of wine. Um, And I also think there's a lot of wine writing um, that's really about the incredible experience that the writer had that is recounted without enough consideration from what the reader will derive from that. So I found myself reading a lot of wine writing, and I'm like, you know, I'm so happy for you that you had this wonderful experience traversing through the hills of Italy— but I didn't, and I feel kind of worse now. Um, and its I think it's designed to be escapist. Um, what I've sort of realized in the process since Cork Door came out and the conversations I've had since, it's made me cognizant of the fact that I think that wine writing and wine coverage in general has really operated in an extremely narrow band where— um, it's, it's mostly focused on the winemakers, and it's often in a very similar tenor where, again, it is the romance of it without often—and a very kind of credulous recounting of the romance without bringing in the other perspectives that we can gain from science, from history, you know, from all these other seemingly unrelated worlds, you know, economics even. And— What I think is remarkable is when you compare that to food, it's like, my God, look at the range of conversations we're having about food. Everything from, like, unicorn Starbucks, frozen, whatever the hell, you know, on Instagram to, like, these beautiful documentary series on Netflix, right? And um, I just think that we could have so many more conversations about wine than we've traditionally had.
2: Amen. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and I hope—I mean, I do
1: hope that—I don't know. I I hope that Corkdork has helped— expand that conversation. And for some reason, I will say that there are times when sort of wine establishment, if you will, isn't always thrilled to have a different new series of voices. And I don't just say that for myself. I actually feel like um, the book has been you know, really well received by, by many, many people in the wine world. But I do see it sometimes being hostile to other people I see kind of coming up and trying to do their own thing. Um, and again, it just seems like we should be encouraging more different types of conversations and voices rather than sort of asking why people haven't uh, been shoehorned into the, the ingrained road to mix many metaphors.
2: <laughs> awesome. I love that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, Bianca Bosker, thank you so much for joining us on The Eater Upsell.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. I'm very thirsty now. I feel like we should have some wine. We but... should. Have <laughs> one. Let's, go,
0: let's go have 14 glasses of wine. Um, if you want to read Cork Dork or listen to the audiobook, as Greg did... Um, it comes highly recommended from both of us. We really, really enjoyed it. And we would, you know, I'm sure Bianca also would like you to pick up a copy. So you can <laughs> I would find love that. it. I'd be honored. Yeah, you can find it wherever books or audiobooks are sold. And if our listeners want to
1: find you on social media, where can they find you? On Twitter, I'm B Bosker. On Instagram, I'm B Bosker. On Facebook, I'm Bianca Bosker. There's a theme there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm me. Cool. <laughs> well, I feel like I've learned a lot about. How about you, Greg? What,
2: yeah, yeah. Let's let's go. Let's go. I hope you might think about
1: having another wine person on at some point. I hope. I, I hope this wasn't the <laughs> no, one no, shot. No, yeah.
0: not, you did a great <laughs> job. You, did, you know, we'll see. Like if nobody listens to the episode, it's like, done. Done. No <laughs> to, more to, wine to guests. clarify,
2: but, Wine people are often super interesting. Oh wine yeah, no, we is,
0: love them. Yeah. But the yeah. writing is.
2: The writing not can always be very dry. The best. Yeah.
0: As always, Upsell is listening at home or on your commutes or mowing your lawn or changing your children's diapers or whatever it is you're doing right now, if you are not already subscribed to the Upsell, please hit that subscribe button, whether you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or on Stitcher or directly on Art19 or wherever you're finding us, make sure you get us in your ears every Monday morning without lifting a finger by subscribing. And if you haven't given us a five-star rating, which you know you want to do, please do that. And as always, you can reach out to me and Greg at upsell at eater.com. We Read all of your emails. We respond to pretty much all of them. We love hearing from you. We love your suggestions for cool wine people that we should be talking to in the future. Also, Bianca, maybe you can email us with some suggestions or say them to us out loud. But regardless, we want to hear from you. We want you to subscribe to us. We love you, listeners. We love you, Bianca. I love you too. Thank you, guys. Awesome. The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Morabito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Gianone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulreich, Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for listening to what we do here and thank you for being your beautiful self.